0: Welcome to Code Reg, a podcast dedicated to regulatory remediation programs. This season is all about GDPR and SHREMS2, and we're picking up where we left off from episode five. Today, we are very pleased to have Julian Cunningham-Day joining us for a discussion of GDPR enforcement, past and present. As an important reminder, the contents of this podcast are based on our experience handling large-scale remediation projects for our global client base and does not constitute legal advice. Factor is an integrated law company providing complex legal work at scale. We are not
1: a law firm and do not provide legal advice. Uh, Over to you, David. Thank you, Koki, and uh, welcome, Julian. It's nice to reconnect professionally after several years. Uh, We're pleased you could join us. Uh, Julian, would you like to briefly introduce yourself to our listeners?
2: Thanks, David. Yes, my name is Julian Cunningham-Day. I'm a partner with Linklaters, a global law firm and I've been working with international businesses for over 20 years, helping them devise and implement their strategies for complying with data transfer requirements such as the GDPR. And I'm greatly looking forward to discussing it with you today.
1: Terrific, thanks, Julian. Uh, so would you like to kick us off and kick off the discussion by providing your views as to the current GDPR enforcement environment and how it has evol- evolved since the uh, GDPR came into force in 2018?
2: Absolutely. So, I guess initially GDPR enforcement really focused on what you might call the low hanging fruit of compliance, such as data security breaches and failures to comply with individual privacy rights, such as marketing consents and data access rights. These would often lead to complaints from individuals directed to regulators, and the regulators would be then inclined to respond and to seek enforcement against companies. Those days, the fines tended to be less than 1 million euros, still quite a lot of money, but um, nothing compared to what we've seen recently. Some exceptions tended to be for systemic issues around security and the like, as I've discussed, mainly at a lower level. But more recently, particularly with the pervasive presence of big tech companies, this has driven the data protection authorities, the DPAs, to really explore a wider range of avenues in their attempts to to curb some of the perceived misuse of data by some of these companies. And this has led to enforcement starting to focus on a variety of different areas. There's been a lot of focus on the transparency that companies provide towards individuals about how their data will be used, including which parts of the world it may be accessible from and what steps are taken to legitimize those transfers and also the rigor that companies employ in ensuring that all of the processing that they do has a legal basis, including when they export that data to third parties who process it on their behalf. There's also been a significant increase in the levels of associated fines. And some of the DPAs have been seeking amounts into the hundreds of millions of euros when they've identified significant areas of non-compliance with GDPR. And as a result, this has really put compliance with these data protection rules on a similar level to the compliance risks associated with antitrust and competition issues that we've often seen facing such significant penalties in the
0: past thanks for that context julian you know thinking about those fines you know factor's been assisting several clients with remediating uh, their service provider contracts and to update their data processing agreements and implementing the new standard contractual clauses or, or SCCs, uh, all of these clients, you know, for all of them, enforcement is, is really top of mind. Uh, and knowing that uh, they won't necessarily be fully remediated uh, by the EU Commission's December 27th, 2022 deadline, can you speak to the likely enforcement posture uh, following that deadline uh, coming up in, uh, at the end of the year here?
2: Well, to give some initial comfort, uh, the, the details of companies' implementation of these export compliance strategies, primarily using standard contractual clauses. I think I've seen statistics that uh, 85% of companies who have that European footprint tend to use these. And it's not historically been a main area of, of direct enforcement activity for the DPAs around Europe. But particularly post what's known as the SHREMS II decision, by Max Frems, which triggered off a whole bunch more focus on this and a significant amount of European litigation, the aspect of export compliance has gone much higher up the compliance agenda for the, the data protection authorities. And so we have seen some recent enforcement activity, specifically in the context of international data exports and associated compliance steps that companies have been taking. I think that's the biggest thing that we've seen is a number of probably the most high-profile data protection authorities coming out and with published decisions regarding the use of big US technology platforms, Google Analytics, Microsoft 365, AWS, and questioning the legal basis on which companies, particularly those in Europe, are using those tools within their businesses. We've seen these pronouncements from jurisdictions such as France, Italy, Austria, the Netherlands, Germany and Switzerland also in Europe under a similar regime. And once you have these regulators publishing on their websites, their view that without significant additional contractual and other measures in place with these vendors, They can't see how locally regulated organisations can comply. It makes it much more of a risk, much more of a focus for those organisations to remediate any perceived gaps they have in their compliance strategy for international transfers. As well as these published decisions, which are available to everybody publicly, so it's difficult to deny if you're a data protection officer, that you're aware of the, the DPA's position on these things. There have been some more specific actions taken by the DPAs which have also raised the temperature in the context of international data exports. For example, several of the DPAs have started to issue routine questionnaires to those organisations that they regulate, requesting explanations from the companies regarding how they, they legitimise data exports and comply with this ShremS 2 decision that I mentioned before. And we see this done on a very coordinated basis. For example, in Germany, where you have a different data protection authority in each federal state there, you have nine of them all coordinating together, deciding on a very detailed set of questions to issue to, to businesses and to public bodies around their use of cloud and other services and following up with the audits or more detailed questions for those organisations that are unable to provide a satisfactory answer to their progress through that remediation exercise that you're talking about there, Cody. So I mentioned earlier there's a lot more enforcement around transparency, and that's led to some of the highest fines recently, particularly for tech companies. And where there's a risk of enforcement for not being sufficiently transparent, you have to take the remedial steps first before you go public updating your privacy policies and notices to say we are taking these steps to ensure international transfer transfer compliance both in terms of the contractual measures and the um, organizational and technical security measures as well and this also has a secondary effect as these questionnaires go out to the various regulated entities it's very easy for the data protection authority to do that they get the r- email addresses from all of the registrants and then they can just blast out these emails across their uh, readership if you like then there's a secondary effect that those organizations will then send out a similar set of requests through their own supply chain in order to start to address the requirements of the regulators and through that cascade down we get um, these requirements going out to hundreds and hundreds and thousands of, of companies all at once so as a result significantly as i say increased focus it's very difficult to state as a company now that you're not aware that this is an area where previously you might get your contracts negotiate them with some vendors put them in a drawer and think i've done i'm done that's what i need to do as, as we've all experienced you now need to be much more rigorous about that in order to be able to say to regulators i've taken the steps that i need you to comply
1: Julian, do you know if the, um, the data protection authorities and using these questionnaires, have they focused on particular industries or market segments, or is it truly just kind of a mass mass mailing to businesses registered to do business in their, in their particular jurisdictions?
2: So, I mean, they've taken a, a variety of different approaches. In Germany, they've picked focusing on businesses which are using particular tools, hosting providers, social media providers, and, and the like and significant focus on the public sector so that'll be of some comfort to a lot of the people listening to this podcast i'm sure but also publicly stated by the french dpa significant focus on the technology as i mentioned obviously a number of the big companies have already experienced um, enforcement in that area but if you look it's more recently there's smaller more innovative companies that you looking to use more creative use of, of personal data are, are getting enforced against as well Educational establishments, healthcare establishments. There's not some exact copying of approach across industries in the different jurisdictions. It tends to be um, more driven by the sorts of technologies. As I said, they will send it on a fairly general basis to everybody and ask you what sorts of technologies you're using, which may imply an export of the data to um, other jurisdictions and then follow up more after that. But one way we are seeing a more directed um, industry approach is, for example, financial services, one of the methods that the data protection authorities have used is they've liaised with industry bodies and financial services regulators, shared their requirements and then asked them to cascade through their industry bodies, their fora, their, uh, their round tables. And so as a result, while I'm working with my clients, I'll see the same set of questions coming up <laughs> across the board because they've all copied and pasted in the sense their, their entire supply chain. But those are some of the areas where i have seen some um, specific focus over the last couple of years
0: it's it's really interesting julian so you know i certainly hear that uh, the data protection authorities are becoming more active in, in assessing personal data you know taking some approaches down uh specific industry uh paths and it, you you had mentioned some you know larger organizations. Um, you know, I, I think we know Amazon Web Services, Google Analytics. Uh, you know we've seen some enforcement actions against those larger organizations. You, you, you briefly mentioned smaller organizations. I, I'm curious your view around if if the DPAs are, are adequately resourced to pursue uh, organizations that, that that aren't as high profile but are, are much higher in in number. It's a good
2: question and. Historically, there's been, you might say, quite a lot more bark in the regulatory posture than bite around this due to to resourcing constraints. But uh, I mean, a couple of things have happened. First of all, the GDPR has implemented a focus on international cooperation between the DPAs. This concept of a one stop shop, which you may have already discussed with some of your clients. Um, where the regulators will, if you like, say, okay, France, you lead on this one; Germany, you lead, lead on that one. They can share the load. And I saw a report recently from some of the DPAs, They're talking about thousands of co—well, I think 2,000 cooperative procedures that have been going on, leading to hundreds of enforcement activities off the back of them. So this way, they have a—you know—they have 25, 30 different bodies. With all the different ones in in germany that multiplies again all working in a much more coordinated way to give more coverage for the markets and using their resources more more efficiently so there's that to start with but then most of this is done as i said at scale through certainly not in-person um, investigations that's, very much a last resort and we don't see that very often are they still still possible it's more through correspondence electronically you blast all the questions out watch the organizations struggle sometimes to respond to them and then you pick up the ones who are struggling a bit with their response then you drill down into further detail and you can do that with a centralized team fairly efficiently and so we see that covering a lot of the ground in terms of the likelihood of enforcement Particularly as I said, if you're a small, smaller organization, I think you can still be feel fairly comfortable that the way the DPAs need to operate is to focus on the key areas of risk. That tends to be either the most impact on the largest number of individuals, the vulnerable individuals, a slightly more self-serving concern is those areas where there are likely to be significant headlines or potential negative feedback for the regulator themselves if they're not seen to act so if you can avoid those areas you're likely to be below the radar level certainly for a while as the regulators focus on those larger risks for the larger organizations who are processing significant amounts of data particularly on a cross-border basis we've talked about the tech companies other organizations other businesses which do deal with huge volumes of data particularly the most sensitive data, health data, political affiliation, all of these areas which the regulators particularly care about. So there are areas, if you think about your own organisation's risk profile, you look at the kind of data they process and the volume and the the geographic spread, and you can decide whether or not you're likely to be really a focus for the regulators at this stage. But for most organisations, small, medium to medium to large, I would be reasonably confident to say they have a a bit more time left in order to put these remediation measures in place before the regulators are likely to take more proactive enforcement steps.
0: That makes sense.
1: Thanks for that, Julian. Um, I'd like to, I guess, turn the discussion a bit to kind of private rights of action and maybe the type of the uh, form of action those that private right of action might take for you know data subjects that um, may be um, injured pursuant to or have been damaged in some way pursuant to a data breach or I guess even situations potentially where it's not a data breach, but uh, a company that is in possession in processing personal data has not technically uh, or fully in, in compliance with, uh, with the GDPR. In the form of class actions, you know, they've been very, they are very pervasive um, in the United States and have been for many years, but I understand they have not been as widely used, but maybe you'll tell me otherwise in the EU. Um, And I'm aware of a somewhat recent, I think it goes back to 2021, a a recent attempt uh, at a class action in the UK, a case called Lloyd versus Google. Um, What are you seeing or hearing about class actions as a mechanism um, to file suit under, under the GDPR?
2: So yes, this has been a, a certainly has been a hot topic in Europe over the last couple of years. As you say, it's um, it's not necessarily been a particularly well-trodden path in the legislatures around Europe in the past, but uh, it's certainly been explored. As you said, there was a very high-profile case in the UK last year where an organised well, an individual with the significant organisation behind it, sought to demonstrate that it could quantify a loss associated with the use of data by that organisation and that it should be able to claim against the organisation as a result. It was a significant test case, which went to a very high level of the courts in the UK, but was ultimately unsuccessful. Um, What has happened is that the whereas the GDPR itself obviously is a uniform set of rules which apply across the continent. Class action rules are more individual, less harmonised, if you like. So certain jurisdictions, particularly the Netherlands, have implemented legislation which will enable bodies to bring claims on behalf of um, identified classes of affected individuals. And more recently, in the last year or two, They've been able to claim monetary compensation in respect of those individuals as a result of, for example, breach of the GDPR. Now, there's three significant cases that have been rumbling through against three significant tech companies in the Netherlands. We'll have to see how they they end up. But more generally, there is a significant amount of legal cases being looked at by the CJEU, obviously the top court in Europe um regarding the necessity for individuals to if you like prove loss in order to bring claims under gdpr and the most recent findings through what we've seen i think there's 65 cases ongoing through the cje at the moment the direction of travel is that it will not be necessary to prove harm in order to bring monetary compensation claims potentially at an individual level role and the class action level as well, as you into breaches of the GDPR. This would be a significant change in the weather, if you like, for GDPR enforcement because it's always been pretty difficult to translate your sense of outrage or disappointment with a service into some financial figures. But now a technical breach in and of itself may be sufficient, which brings us again back to our subject today of um, making sure that you can demonstrate that you have taken the steps to avoid any claim that a technical breach of say data exports has occurred
1: sure so not having the updated standard contractual clauses in place could be such a <laughs> technical breach that might lead to some monetary paying out some monetary damages to an individual or group of individuals yeah
0: it could indeed so julian i'm thinking about the years ahead and Simultaneously, looking back at the past several years and, and thinking about Factor clients uh, who we've worked with for GDPR and, and SHREMS remediation efforts, and uh, needless to say, a, a lot of heartburn and time and energy uh, going into those remediation efforts. But looking at the years ahead, looking forward, you know, I've I've heard that the U.S. and the EU are working on new uh, new Privacy Shield framework to help legitimize data transfers uh, from the EU. Uh, but it it would be great to get uh, your perspective on how far those discussions have progressed, and um, you know if there's anything else that we can expect uh, in, in the months and years ahead, uh, for, you know, from these the, these
1: data regulatory agencies. And and I just I would add to that. Uh, mm-hmm. I guess will it are they looking forward enough to kind of Shrem's proof it <laughs> such that it w- <laughs> it won't be <laughs> right. It won't be challenged again in the future. <laughs> yeah.
2: Good question. So um, well, first of all. You know, a significant step forward with an executive order by President Biden, I think a month ago now, putting in place the necessary measures stateside to support what they're kind of calling now Privacy Shield 2.0, well, they, uh, it's possibly 3.0 actually, where they're having a third go at establishing a framework in the US which will be sufficiently robust to, first of all, Obtain that adequacy determination from the European authority and second withstand the now inevitable legal challenges to that adequacy assessment which we experienced last time. So I think it's fair to say good progress. Obviously as you said they're very mindful of the fact that the Schrems 2 decision and all of the regulatory guidance came up around it Massively raise the bar in terms of the requirements to use standard contractual clauses. And so, when you're trying to create an alternative compliance option, which doesn't involve so many bits of paper and so many now well established processes, they're going to have to find some very detailed ways to underpin the principles which they're debating in order to provide that comfort to the European authorities that they're not going to green light something and then six months later, they just get the rug pulled out from under them again by a bunch of clever students in Europe who find loopholes and everything else. So for that reason, it's it, it's certainly in a positive step. And in you know the next two, three years, I'd say we may have something robust enough the companies can start to think about pivoting if they want to towards that. But unfortunately, with that kind of timescale in mind, you really have to think about a workable solution for now which will stand the right. test of time at least for a few years before thinking about plan b which will be tempting but i'm afraid you need to be fairly patient
1: yeah yeah that's fair and uh, julian I, I seem to recall um there were some limitations for instance uh, again it's the u.s department of commerce uh is the reg- kind of the regulatory body the governmental body that's involved in this my my recollection is like for example financial services companies were not could not qualify under the privacy shield or self certify under the privacy shield or the safe harbor prior to that because they're regulated by whether it's the Federal Reserve, or the Office of the Controller of Currency. Is that, am I recalling that correctly?
2: You absolutely are. And so it was never a, a holistic solution, if you like. I think they're trying to make it more of a holistic solution this time. You know, there's, it's so much more of a kind of holistic debate, both I think in the US and, and Europe. That, you know to try to come with a solution for everyone but whereas to a certain extent europe benefits from fairly unitary regulatory regimes and standards you know trying to impose the same standard across the entirety of the different industries in the us and the different regulatory bodies it's a whole different ball game it would be great if we could make it happen we'll see
0: That makes sense and is very helpful. Uh, Thanks so much for your time today, Julian. I really appreciate you being our special guest. And as always, uh, thank you, David, for joining as well. Uh, And thank you to all of our listeners for listening to this episode of Code Reg. Uh, This is the final episode of our season. Uh, Please be on the lookout for uh, future seasons of Code Reg. Uh, You can find this podcast and more at our website at www.factor.law. And if you enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate if you take a moment to leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts.